This podcast is offered by the San Francisco Zen Center on the web at www.sfzc.org. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. Let's see, my name is Sarah. For those I haven't met, um, I use the pronoun she and her because I love being female. I realized recently. Not because I love the gender binary. Um, yes. Try. <clears throat> yes, I'll try. Um, I use the. Pro- oh, I see. I'm amplified. I thought this was recording. All right. Um, yes. So she and her pronouns. Not loving the binary. Committed to liberating gender from a binary. Really invested. Um, for the sake of all beings and wholeness. I want to express my gratitude to. Everybody, <laughs> thank you um, for being here. Thank you for all the efforts, you know, um, in, in the particular sense, thank you for the efforts that allowed this retreat to happen this week. Um, unlikely as that might have been in moments. And I know there's a tremendous amount of gratitude in the group and awareness, like, that we were lucky and um, and deep appreciation and thank you for the invitation to talk Linda you can see I feel your support um, and um, to all to my teachers of many kinds and to the Sangha and I have the intention to call in our, our, our ancestors, you know, all of them, um, the many kinds of them, um, and gratitude to them for bringing us together in a sangha. You know, this is a sangha, you know. Even, um, it just doesn't matter how fleeting people come together to take up the Dharma, that Sangha, you know. And I'm grateful for it, and I hope um, our time together tonight will be a benefit and uh, will honor them all. I'll name a couple. How long is it supposed to be? 40 minutes. Okay. <laughs> I'll try. I'm a little like loosely tendered to linear time right now. <laughs> Not simply because of Tassahara, but because of a lot of bad sleep. Man, I'll buy a watch. <laughs> but I have to like, okay, 820, Okay. Um, I'll, I'll name a couple of the identities that I carry so you don't have to guess besides uh, um, identifying as female. I, I am white, American, nor, Northeastern American, raised. Um, I am a partner. My beloved person is uh, Charlie Picorni. We met here. Our oldest baby was uh, born here. 
Kaya. And, um, and I'm a parent to Kaya and Sati and Loka. And um, each of my children shape me deeply and teach me. And I know, it's, I know people say that. Um, really, though, like teachers beyond, you know, because you can't get away from them. <laughs> but you know, like your Dharma teacher's not going to throw up in the middle of the night <laughs> and force you to love them. Anyway. <laughs> Um, uh, yeah, and those are, you know, I, I can't even name all the identities, but I, what I do want to say is I see that I am located in particular identities, and I see that that limits my perspective. And I can have really good intentions about being liberal <laughs> and white and good and, and helpful, and, um, and I can still cause harm, especially because of my whiteness. I like that. That's the one, you know, that that I see as um, the conditioning around that is just causes a lot of obscuration of other people's experience. Um, and I'm learning, and I'm devoted to learning. <coughs> and I will be uh, for the rest of my life, since it took me all this time you know, to become white. In the first place. Um, and then I'll just tell you a little about my relationship to Tassahara, which is that I, I came here in January of 1998. And the day I came here, there were ladybugs swarming. It was January. Um, it's like they've been doing the past couple of days. Yeah. It's so great. Um, they were, the dining room was being remodeled, so there was no dining room. So even in the winter, we used the student eating area, and there was like plastic on the windows and heaters, and the and I guess the ladybugs were like, "Why leave?" <laughs> so it was wild to come here in the winter and have ladybugs swarming around. And I lived here for a, a number of years over the next nine years, and um, a little bit at Green Gulch. I'm grateful to both places, and I um, never felt at home at Green Gulch. I can actually say, and I don't mean that. I just want, I've just been pondering that lately. It's a very difficult place for me to live. Whereas Tassahara is like, I don't even, I, it's not even a place to me. It's like a realm of my heart, my soul. And I, and I was in quite a bit of pain when I came here and um, feel like this, this, this land and this place and this Sangha, you know, even though you all maybe weren't here yet, some of you, <laughs> um, you were. And um, it brought me back to life. Um, <clears throat> uh, Linda asked a couple of days ago, would I be willing or like to give a talk? And I um, went to sleep and she's like, you don't have to answer right now, which was very kind. And I went to sleep with the question of like, is there anything that wants to be said? Um, which I should maybe should have qualified like let me know in the morning <laughs> So I woke up at 2.30 with the a, a lot of many thoughts came but one of them was um, Thich Nhat Hanh's teaching which I think is really an important teaching and then David has said that he's talked about it is um, Thich Nhat Hanh, as far as I can tell and maybe please fill me in if you know more about this um, 
Tignahan did a calligraphy that said, the next Buddha will be Sangha. And I first encountered this in a, um, an article by Sevene Selassie called Sangha is a Verb, which I highly recommend. I also really highly recommend Sevene Selassie's book, You Belong. It's a beautiful teacher. Um, I want to just give a little cosmological context. I mean, I don't actually know what Tignahan meant. <laughs> I've heard other people speculate similar to my speculation, but I don't know. Here's what I'm guessing. Um, in Buddhist, so Buddhist cosmology is super awesome and trippy. <laughs> um, in Buddhist cosmology, time is cyclical, and we live in cycles. So it's so it's normal that there is a rising and there's dissolving, there's destruction, you know, falling apart coming together and falling apart. And, and we, there's talk of, um, traditionally, at kalpas. So amounts of time that are so vast, they're like mythical. You know, tens of millions of whatevers. Like we can't really even conceive of them. But the idea is, um, you know, we're, we're part of this. We're part of this swirling of arising and falling apart. Don't worry. It's all right. It's just that's not what things do. In fact, the whole universe and more, more than just our universe and some versions. Um, and and Buddhas. So then there's there's the three bodies of Buddha. Maybe you've heard of this. Our daughter's named after this idea. Um, so Kaya means body, and there are three bodies of Buddha. That, that are kind of, that are always there, I guess. The Nirmanakaya, so what we think of as the, as the embodied Buddha, the historical Buddha, in our time, in our Kalpa, this, this era, Shakyamuni Buddha is that Buddha. And the, um, the Dharmakaya, the body of the reality of teaching. And the Sambhogakaya, which I wish, you know, we had more time. <laughs> But it's just really important to know, if nothing else, an essential body of the Buddha to be a Buddha is bliss, joy, ease. That's Sambhogakaya, the joy body of wisdom. And Nirmanakaya Buddhas are created by, or here's a version that I'm kind of making up, but it's sort of, it's somewhat aligned with the tradition. Karma and suffering call in a Buddha. So the body of a Buddha is made out of in response to the needs of the pain of the of that world and that time. So you get like a custom Buddha <laughs> for your for our suffering. So, so I really, for me, that all that context is really important to think about Chitnyahan saying, the next Buddha will be Sangha. The next Nirmanakaya, the next manifestation body will be Sangha. Um, and again, not knowing what he meant. Um, what, I, what I hear is wisdom in this world 
to respond to the suffering of this world will be multiplicitous. That's a word. The, the wisdom body of response to the suffering of this world will be a, a multitude, will be a collective, will be a collaboration, will be relational. Um, what's really also wonderful about Buddhism is like anything that happens on a giant scale also happens on like the tiniest of scales. So in any given moment, Buddhas can be born in response to the suffering that's there. You know? And again, and even there, I think, this teaching of Tegyanhan is really helpful. The next Buddha, this next moment will be Sangha. Um, the Dalai Lama, who is, um, in my understanding, the Dalai Lama's position in the world is actually a, a, like a Nirmanakaya or a manifestation body of Avalokiteshvara. He's a reincarnation of Avalokiteshvara. And there are not simply um, spiritual reasons for this, there are also political reasons, as I understand it, for him saying this. But what he said is, next time around, I'm not coming in one body. I'll come in where you'll find out. <laughs> but he said, you know, don't look for me in one body. That's my understanding. And again, like, chime in if you have talked with him. <laughs> Which is possible here. Um, so, um, so, so, you know, I, I know, I feel it. Like, just right now, sitting here, we have not all had the same conditioning by any means. You know, just looking around the room at the people I know, different countries, different cultures. But there is a, there is a heavy momentum around individualism, especially in the United States. And um, so how do we move from individualism to multiplicity, collectivism? shared leadership and responsibility and voices and remedies and responses. Individualism, as far as I can tell, is depends on the delusion of separation. It's a deluded point of view. That doesn't mean to say that we're not particular beings. We and like look around. We are particular, but we are not separate. You know. Um, so, you know, <laughs> rugged individualism, like rugged delusion, <laughs> and, and like intractable, and, you know, I won't get into, I won't go too far down the like, you know what's so messed up about America? <laughs> <laughs> There's just so much that's so messed up, you know, from, from the roots, you know, from the, from the creation white supremacy, you know, elevating whiteness, the destruction of, of people of color, right in the roots of this country as it is now, you know, and, um, and a form, a, a, an enactment of Christianity that is just, I was saying to some other people, Jesus would be mad, you know, from Jesus as I have heard about him, which is, which is cool, what I got to hear about. <clears throat> Jesus that um, would not be down with the patriarchy <laughs> or the homophobia or the transphobia or any of it or the or the uterus hating 
which is very, very painful. Yeah. So painful that this is coming around with such a vengeance right now. Um, and, you know, I, so what I want to own is like, I, I am of this. I am of centuries of delusion. I'm a white American person, colonial. Who cares where my grandparents were from? I have inherited the whole thing, you know. Um, and, and so I can speak from that place of like, like then how do we learn? How, how do people like me learn to be more spacious when I've been taught to be so isolated, delusional separation? Um, in the Genjo Koan, Dogen Zenji says, um, when Dharma does not fill your whole body and mind, you think it's already sufficient. You think you got it. I'm good. I figured it out. I'm lame or whatever. I'm free. I'm, I'm, I, I know things. When Dharma fills your body and mind, you understand that something is missing. And, and this something that's missing is the understanding of how all things make any moment or make me or make, make the interaction. You know? So um, when Dharma fills us up, and that's not a static thing, right? It's not like, oh, some people got the fill Dharma and some people don't. There are moments, you know, when Dharma fills you up and, and your perception is softened by the understanding like there's so much more than I can see. You know, and then that and and when we are in that state as human beings and as practitioners, we are receptive to the multiplicity. You know, we're certain that my perspective is not the only one. And it, and actually nothing useful will happen until there's at least a bunch of others. Yeah. Um, the other morning in work circle, I was there when Abbot David was sharing the story about the fires burning all around Tassajara in, what year was it? 2008. That's like a long time ago. 2008. So, so fires burning, like coming down here, burning, well, things got burned. And the, and the few folks, you know, I'm sure some of you have read Fire Monks. Um, and sitting at the, is this okay? I told you I was going to say. <laughs> um, sitting at the edge of his bed at, at night because he was the director and needing to make lots of decisions. And that's hard and stressful, I imagine, in a, when you're literally on fire. Um, sitting at the edge of his bed saying, I don't know, don't know. Training in don't know, I don't, don't know, don't know. I was so touched when I heard that because um, I, I looked, I could see, I could look and see my own conditioning that says to be in leadership is to be certain, even if you're pretending. <laughs> to be in leadership is to know stuff. Yeah. To be in leadership is to know. I see this all the time around Zen centers. People are like, quote, you know, like I, I know where that quote came from. And I, like, it's great. It's beautiful. I love, you know, we, we can love the Dharma. Um, but, like, just, we need to soften around the certainty. And elevating just the mind that knows. So that, like, 
So training and don't know, training the mind, especially when we, folks like me, so not everyone, but also, you know, folks who have received the kind of training I have that say to be an adult, to be responsible, first is to be certain, and secondly is to be in control. Because the delusion of separation never ends, you know, <laughs> or delusion never ends. And it's like, oh yeah, you should be in control, you, you probably could. So we train in, I don't, I don't actually know. I remind myself, no, I don't, I don't know. And when, when we as Dharma practitioners can do that, then we, we start to get more supple. We start to get ready for reality to show up versus being like, here's the picture I, I'm going to make happen. In, in the Genjo Koan, also Dogen talks about the circle of water, you know. When you go out to an ocean where no land is in sight and view the four directions, the ocean looks circular and does not look any other way. And I remember, I'm pretty sure in this Zendo, listening to um, Rabbi Anderson say something like, but, and so what you need to know, it's not like you can see the whole ocean, you cannot. But that, but you see the circle and instead of saying like, oh, well, the ocean's a circle, you say, oh, all I can see is a circle. And Rev was saying like, so that if you're sitting there in a nice circle of water, and that's the way it's always been, but a whale comes through, you're not like, mm-mm. <laughs> you know, I don't know what you are, <laughs> you don't belong in the circle. Um, and, and like the massiveness of the whale tells you, oh, there's quite a bit more ocean out there <laughs> for something that big to exist. Dogen's energy goes on, you know, it only, it only looks circular as far as you can see at that time. All things are like this. Though there are many features in the dusty world and the world beyond conditions, you see and, only, and understand only what your eye of practice can reach. And then he goes on, it's saying like, it's like a palace, it's like a jewel. And it's possible to illustrate this with more analogies. Practice enlightenment and people are like this. So every time we look at one another, we can be like, whole worlds are there. Whole worlds are there. And, I was going to say, but, I'm going to stop myself. Um, It takes time and space to allow for that. We have to go slow enough, you know, to look at a person and be like, whoa. Especially people we think we know, you know, like, oh, I met you, or, you know, you're my partner, or whatever <laughs> the story is. Oh, yeah, yeah. For those who know Charlie, we're about to be married for 20 years. Yeah. I'm old. <laughs> I like being old, by the way. I say that as like a, yeah. <laughs> I've made it to oldness. I've been looking forward to it for years. <laughs> So we, we're ready, you know, we're ready for the whale of whatever the person is. So I've been thinking lately about, like, sorry, I hope this doesn't seem too wandering. Like, so to me, like that, that suppleness of mind is a condition for us to be together in true Sangha. Like to help the next Buddha come about. We, we have to be willing to be receptive to one another and stop trying to like smear our... And by our, I'm going to name what I mean there, 
I'm especially meaning white people, <laughs> really. Because I, I see, I actually hear it myself so often since I received this feedback from people who love me, who are not white, who are like, can you just pay attention to what you mean when you say we and our and Dharma talks? <laughs> and I'm like, oh, ow, and thank you <laughs> for that loving guidance. Um, so, so not smearing one's, but that's true for everyone. No one should be smearing their experience all over because again, whole worlds are there. And I've been looking at the, like, what is it that gets in the way of that being a quality of our interactions? And I've had, I've had a couple painful interactions recently. One of them, not, just a couple of days ago before I came down here. And, um, the person was upset and stressed out and um and the, but the experience on the receiving end was like i was like hey looking for some information uh why no <laughs> no stop don't know i'm gonna like i need to control the situation was the response like i just i wasn't i didn't feel received in the interaction and i knew that's you know stress and fear was in the way um, there's a wonderful um, document, and can you help me? Um, by uh, Tema Okunen. Do you know? So it's it's called Characteristics of White Supremacy Culture. Do folks know this document? It's very helpful, but I can only ever remember Tema Okunen's name and not the other person. <laughs> a wonderful other person made this offering, um, whose name I will now go learn. Um, and it just names different characteristics. And I want to just pause and make sure that I'm defining what I mean by white supremacy culture, which is just like dominant culture in the United States that elevates white people, but also like white cultural ways of doing things. Does that, does anyone like stop saying that word? No, okay. Just because people get disoriented or there's old, maybe older meanings of it. And names these different characteristics, all of which are, for someone like me who was raised in white supremacy culture, very illuminating. Because I was like, oh, I just thought it was reality. <laughs> I was like, no, this is just a white cultural, uh, actually, the project of elevating whiteness agenda. One of them is a sense of urgency. And when I first heard that one, I thought like, oh, yeah, you know, when things are urgent. But I'm actually starting to realize like, oh, in my experience as a white person in, in predominantly white cultures, those of us that have this identity are constantly generating a sense of urgency by overcommitting and overdoing things so that we're in a state of stress and not very receptive. When I was thinking about how to describe that, I was, I was like, if I had to kind of give you the visual that I have of what it means to be white in America. It's like there's a, no, whatever, there's lots of pieces to it. Here's, here's one that I've seen in myself and lots of other people, that there's like this gaping maw of guilt and shame in the center of many of us that is because racial inequity is pretty obvious actually. But we, there's also some really serious training around not noticing it, you know, early on when you're really small and formative. Um, and so then there's this like endless effort to chuck good deeds in there. 
Does that resonate for any of you? Like just keep keep the good deeds. Somehow that mouth might be filled up with the good deeds, the goodness. <laughs> Instead of like just just stop, you know. It's not there's plenty of help. Uh, those of us who are white need to be doing. I help. I don't know how it's not the right word. There's much work. There's much work. That's what I want to say. Um, there's lots that needs to be done, but I think it would be useful if there was also like a general orientation of like just stop for a second and exist and feel the pain. Actually, if if it. Your, if, if one's acculturation has not so far allowed for it, just make the room, like feel it. it it's not going to kill you. It's going to make, it's going to hurt. Um, but it, but, and, the, and then from there move, we can move into work, but not with the frenzy, you know, like, ah, I'm so good, I'm so good, I swear to God, I'm so good. Um, you know, I, I'm sort of joking, but I, I, this is my life. Like, I lived out this thing, uh, thinking, and really, like, it, and then if, like, if, if you pause long enough, and, or for me, I'm going to speak for myself, I'm not going to say you. When I pause long enough, and I feel the pain that I've been feeling, like, little tiny children, you know, some, someone like me, small white child in a predominantly white environment, was very aware, and most of them are, that like something's funny about the racial reality. So since then, carrying that around, so there's like a lot of backlog to work with. <laughs> um, feeling that, and then and then feeling into the story, like that, like the demons that's created, like I'm worthless, which is funny, because in my experience, me and other white people walk around like, um super worthful. <laughs> it looks that way. But really, you can feel it. There's a sense of, like an insecurity and a, yeah, a lack of self-worth because there's this extreme effort to not see what's real and not feel what's there to be felt. So, I, I think what we have to do is like is to slow down, you know, and move when we, when it's possible. Just like slow down, get less busy, move at the pace of like of our hearts. Maybe better yet, like our guts. In our retreat, this. So I wanted to show you one way this could look. In our. Um, Retreat this week, Katie Dion, who's here, um, brought a practice that she got permission to bring to the group from the the creator of this, Miyakota Taylor. Yeah, like they came up with it. Um, who is the founder of Fierce Allies or Katie Trains? Um, it's a practice. It's just a very simple practice of a hand gesture that the group can agree to include. So you're in a group setting. It's like all whole worlds are there, all 19 people, lots is going on. The practice is 
if somebody feels like something's off, so this is moving at the, this is, this is at least recognizing the level of the gut. You can put your hand up like this. And then one other, and we like put it a little forward, so it's different than like, oh, I have a question. And then the practice is um, everyone else puts their hand up once they see it, and, and it just slows everything down. And then if you're willing to receive feedback, you put your other hand like this. You know, there's a compassion mudra that's like, like this. Is it a mudra? It's like a mudra, you know. And, um, you know, we didn't spend the whole, we didn't, it, it, we, it was so cool to see how it worked. Because I think, I know, I think there's folks over here that would be like, oh my gosh, you'll never get anything done. <laughs> it was really cool for me as a human being to experience how, what it did was like allow us to move at the pace of, of the guts, you know, of the intuition. And, and Katie beautifully framed it, like, you don't even have to really know what's wrong, it's just something's off. And it made me realize, particularly as a female-identified person throughout my development, how I've been taught to not notice my guts. I've been uncomfortable lots of times, and I was trained to go, ha, 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 yeah. <laughs> oh, that's funny, <laughs> when I was like, <clears throat> Really, but I, but you know, no one said that was okay, and no one modeled that. So what happens when we make when we move at the pace of our gut? When we make room for being like, I don't even know what it is. I just can we slow down for a second? Can we stop with the urgency thing and just um, make a room? Um. And what's cool is to value the discomfort, and this for me is another, when I look at my cultural training, a totally new thing. I was, not explicitly, but implicitly, I've, I've done some studying of this, <laughs> what I've been taught, which was like, discomfort is, is, might kill you. Do everything you can to get away from it. It sounds funny. Like, I want to laugh too, but it, like, I'm not joking. Like, and that the value of comfort of white people and white, and white cultural ways of doing things was so high that it would run over, or, and the value of, of like patriarchal ideas, you would run over the experience of people, other people, everybody, actually. So, the, like, what happens when we begin to not fear? make room for and value our discomfort. And you know, this is just anecdotal experience from this week, but I can say like, we got a lot of stuff done. <laughs> a lot of rich things happened. It wasn't, it wasn't like, that's so unproductive. In fact, it like, it just like created a field of everybody matters. Katie and Tim and I, who are the facilitators, didn't stop being the facilitators, you know? I talked more than anybody else, I'm pretty sure. Nobody got really mad. No, no one got upset at me. So there, there can still be leadership, you know? There can still, we can still have roles of leadership and guidance. We, there, you know, that's useful when it's not 
held in domination, and when it's not held in certainty, when it's not held in obscuration of the experience of others. And the Dharma really supports this, I think. I really feel deeply as a human being supported by the Dharma to do this deeply transgressive but healing practice of slowing down enough to notice and value and listen. Here's page three. Here's alternate page three. I'm almost done. <laughs> it's kind of fun to have to hand write things, actually. I heard there's computers here. I have no idea how to access them. I'm like, yeah, I heard just... <laughs> um, recently, I was listening to a, a podcast called Brown Rice Hour with it, that's um, Conda Taylor. I think her last name's Taylor. Um, she was in conversation with, I've met all four of these people, but I know two of them pretty well. So uh, Conda Taylor, Kate Johnson, Crystal Johnson, and Don Haney. Kate and Crystal are not related. And they were talking about a program they were, uh, a, a, a quote DEIA program they were running for this program through Sounds True that it's like this two year training for mindfulness teachers. And talking about the, the terminology and the problems with it, actually, and some pain, particularly around the word inclusion. That was something that was a really important teaching for me. A Conda, who's a black American woman, was saying like she really doesn't like the word inclusion. She's like because inclusion's like white people need to like include everybody, you know. Like, but we, in her experience, she was saying that whiteness is still the standard. She's like, I'm the standard, and I was like, yeah, okay, yeah. <laughs> But you know, the language is always moving. And so they were having, uh, in part, their conversation was about like, well, what, what language, you know? And there was this recognition, like, well, you can't get it right. And sorry, I know I just keep talking about the white people, but let me just tell you, in my experience of white acculturated training, like, white people are like, just tell me how to do it right. <laughs> and healing, so actually, well, let me first say, the word that came to my, the words that came to my mind was, possible alternatives were healing and transformation. Like we have healing and transformation committees, <laughs> initiatives. And actually like healing then transformation. You know, there's like so much healing to be done. And that probably, uh, I'm gonna guess that that is a word that's like not working for everybody. So I have no certainty about that being a useful word. It just came up. It does, in my experience, it seems to be an important part of the ground for real transformation to happen. There needs to be room for that and time and energy. You know, when things are broken, like in our bodies, you know, if you've ever broken a bone and you get really tired, in my experience, like with little kids, you can tell actually, when, my experience with my children, you can tell when a bone is broken because they're super tired. Because the body's just like, you know, like drawing in all this energy to heal. So there needs to be, um, there needs to be a value, and then time and space made. And it seems to me like 
that might be what's happening here at Tassajara right now. It might not be. It just depends on what everybody wants to make of it. But there's, it seems like a really good chance, perhaps the best chance that I've ever experienced. And I had, you know, I started seeing this place up close up in 1998 to slow down, especially in July, <laughs> or, or at least June. Okay, fine. <laughs> you know, slow down and um, make room and listen to everybody. And then, and then make room for people who aren't going to talk until there's like a lot of room. And then make more room for some quiet and then make more room. Okay, I'm kind of out of time, but I, the last thing I want to say is that, um, you know, in the morning, every, every day we say, all Buddhas, ten directions, three times. I said that for years before I thought about it in any way. But lately it's really been striking me like, oh, we, every day we say, so three times is past, present, and future. Every day we say past, present, and future is right here. And I, I really want to lift up the possibility that when we, when we as human beings, now I mean we as human beings, and Bodhisattva practitioners, when we do the work of healing, First of all, we set the conditions for transformation and healing for whoever our karmic descendants. I'm also, I deeply feel it that it, because the past, present, and future are not apart from each other, that we also help heal the history. So it's worth it. It's, it's not just worth it. <laughs> she sparkle hand. Um, thank you. Um, but it, it's, I don't know, it's worth it even the right word because that's almost like there's my capitalist training. It's, it's for those of us, and I'm going to say us meaning anyone that this sounds tribute, value liberation, making the space for this healing is essential and it and it is laying it is opening the doors it's making the conditions for the next buddha the next buddha is here actually it's you know um, can be is in any given moment okay now i'm a little bit over time but i i don't know my family and i are moving across the country to brooklyn new york <laughs> in a couple of weeks to work at uh, Charlie and I are going to work at the Brooklyn Zen Center and be a part of that sangha and, and help support the practice there and our children are going to be okay there <laughs> I need to convince myself right now so I don't know when I'll be back here next so I, um, I just need to quickly don't get up or anything new <laughs> But I just, I was like, can we just, can we just like move a little in the Zen <laughs> You know, 
know, I can we like Charlie and I have taught for a number of years at the Stone Creek Zen Center. It's a different sanga, a different lineage, and people give you eye contact during a talk. <laughs> <laughs> like, so when we come here, we're like, oh, it's a tough crowd. <laughs> we do know. Like I remember being like, it's so relaxing to just be like, I'm just receiving. I'm really listening. I'm not asleep. And when I lived here, I would look. But... Um, I don't know, I just feel like Zendo's, it, we gotta change. We might have to dance in here. <laughs> don't freak out, anybody. <laughs> we might need to sing in here. We might need to scream. Yeah. You ever been to a Zen funeral? I'm like, <laughs> so quiet. It's sort of helpful, but like there's also the wailing that's required, you know. It's like, it's okay. Don't be afraid. You can dance in here. We're not dishonoring the tradition. Yeah. For us to, we're entrusted with this tradition. It, it's living, it's alive. Because it's alive, it is changing. It's, the Dharma will survive. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the San Francisco Zen Center. Our Dharma talks are offered free of charge, and this is made possible by the donations we receive. Your financial support helps us to continue to offer the Dharma. For more information, visit sfcc.org and click Giving.